This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. There are growing complaints and controversy over the new lockdown rules in Ontario long-term care homes. When there's a COVID outbreak, and that's defined as at least a single case, residents are confined to their rooms with all the associated ramifications on their quality of life and mental health. Sometimes there are few cases among residents, some of whom have started to get their fourth COVID vaccine shots, and most of those cases seem to be asymptomatic, although some residents who've contracted COVID in this latest wave have died. So are those measures too harsh, or is this a case where the Ford PCs are damned if they put in restrictive measures and damned if they don't? Libby asked these questions during a conversation with our Monday Zoomer squad. Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer magazine. David Kravitz, chief marketing officer at CARP and vice president at Zoomer Media. And Bill Van Gorder, chief operating officer and chief policy officer of CARP, a new vision of aging. The government is damned if it does and damned if it doesn't. And it's because... Uh, we've inherited a system of long-term care that's not patient-centered, doesn't look at what's best for the patient, but looks what's what will work for the the system. And there, though, and it's the the residents who are being caught in the in the middle of these uh, prescriptions, which uh, uh, may be designed to help them uh, in some ways, but it's certainly. Uh, not giving them the quality of life we would want our loved ones to have in their later years. David, is there any way around this, given that we are where we are and they're in the homes that exist? I don't think there's any way around it, but I think the government has backed itself into so many corners on this. It's difficult to, you know, cherry pick and say they should have done this instead of done that. Uh, If you're defining an outbreak as one case, uh, the absurdity that follows from that. Well, what is that one case? How old is that one case? Is that one case double vaccinated and booster? Does that one case have dangerous comorbidities? Do you, what do you have to fear from uh, Omicron coming into that home? And how does that relate scientifically to restrictions you're placing on the number of caregivers that can come in? I think we've long passed the point where there is science behind any of this. It's just, you know, trying to put out the fire as best they can. Peter, the the problem is is they're not they're not only trying to protect uh, residents; they're also trying to protect staff because, um, you know, it, it, it could be. I, I think I read somewhere that up to thirty percent of, uh, you know, in some homes, up to thirty percent of staff are reporting sick with COVID. So uh, they need to halt that spread among the staff first and foremost. And um, unfortunately, what it means is that they have to go back a step to previous uh, measures and previous measures that hurt hurt the residents. So um, in protecting the residents, 
the staff who look after the residents are hurting the residents. Um, they're isolating them. You know, they're locking them in the rooms. They're not letting them walk about. So it, it's really, you know, Libby, it's really damned if you do, damned if you don't. And um, if Phillips didn't make this move, uh, he might suffer the same fate as his predecessor. How did you think Phillips did? He said, we're doing this on the advice of our doctors. And as far as I know, Andrea Horvath has no medical degree. David? Well, I think that's the answer that he would prudently give a person in his uh, position. And I think that Peter touched on it earlier. If they have to protect the staff, if you just don't have enough staff, and on a related topic, I heard a news report today that they're they're running out of, they're in trouble with ambulances in Toronto because of of staff shortages and not being able to deposit patients at the hospitals because of shortages. So if there's a whole uh, condition of staff reporting in uh, sick and then reporting that they're getting uh, Omicron, and by definition, the staff in nursing homes would be out in the community more than the residents in the nursing homes anyway, so more chances to pick this up. Uh, I, I think that if he's getting that advice from his science table, uh, he, he does indeed have to follow it, even though it sets up Bill's question of, you know, uh, the vulnerabilities in the healthcare system and the weaknesses and the under-resourcing before all of this started. David Kravitz, Chief Marketing Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. And Bill Van Gorder, CARP's Chief Operating and Policy Officer, Fightback's Monday Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fightback on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Hospitalization and ICU numbers continue to rise by dozens of patients every day in Ontario. If you do contract the Omicron variant, how do you know if your symptoms warrant going to the hospital? If you've received a third shot of COVID vaccine, it's very likely you won't need to go to the hospital unless you are older or immunocompromised. If you've decided against getting vaccinated, the message is that it's never too late and certainly better than after contracting the virus when you could become severely ill. Joining Libby on Monday for a discussion on this important issue, Dr. A.L. Golan, an intensive care doctor here in the GTA, and Dr. Jamie Spiegelman, internal medicine and critical care physician at Humber River Hospital. Over the last week, it's been definitely an explosion of these COVID patients coming into our emergency room, being hospitalized as well as coming to the ICU, but more more on the medical floors. Um, definitely, I don't know, I, I'm hoping we're reaching our peak, but over the last couple of days, and, and especially since we last spoke to you guys last week, there's definitely been a significant exponential rise in COVID patients being hospitalized. And we're seeing patients from a very, all, all, all age groups, uh, but definitely a large portion are not vaccinated or are very immunocompromised with medications. Dr. Golan, what are you finding? Uh, very similar. Um, the unfortunate reality is that the cases continue to rise and we don't know where the peak is. Uh, usually, as you know from previous waves, uh, we, we get a sense of where things stand approximately two or two and a half weeks after major events like holidays or Thanksgiving or Christmas. This time it's New Year's and Christmas, and uh, this is one of the reasons they closed so many things down, 
we just don't know where the peak is yet. So the numbers have definitely increased. Uh, hospitals throughout the GTA are, are bursting at the seams, and that's for a variety of reasons, including this exponential growth that Jamie just described, but also because there's still a backlog from the previous wave, which is a lot of very tired people, and there's less staff just for a variety of reasons. What kind of shape are most of these patients in, Dr. Spiegelman? Uh, the majority of them are uh, are coming in very dehydrated because they've been sick with like flu-like illness for a week or so. So they come in very dehydrated, and a lot of them are not coping well at home, especially the elderly, and that's one of the main reasons they get hospitalized. However, um, we are still seeing a significant portion of them coming in with really bad respiratory failure requiring ICU and intubation and, and a ventilator. So... It varies. Uh, definitely, definitely, the vaccines work because patients that are vaccinated that get the COVID or Omicron at this point are not as sick, but they can still be sick. But they're they usually come in very dehydrated, and definitely, I agree with Dr. Golan that the emergency rooms are backed up. Like as of this morning, we have 40 patients waiting for a bed in our emergency room to be admitted to the medical floor. Wow. So where where are they? They're in the emergency room blocking the emergency room beds, which unfortunately is not the safest thing to do because there's always new patients coming in, but we have no choice. So uh, we're trying to discharge as many patients from the floor that have been here over the weekend. But, you know, we, we have to manage with treating them in the emergency room, in the hallways, in the emergency room at this point. Dr. Spiegelman, what would you like to leave us with? The one thing that I am consistently seeing in the hospital, both in the medical floors as well as in the ICU these days are patients that are getting very sick that are not vaccinated. Um, so I don't think it's too late to get your vaccine. So if you haven't gotten it yet, I would get the vaccine as soon as possible. Hmm. Dr. Golan? I think for sure the vaccine is, is the best weapon we have. But I think the other message I would give is we've been through this several times now. I would just encourage everybody to be kind to each other. I think everybody's stressed. Everybody's on edge. Uh, the unvaccinated are, the vaccinated are. I think people are pointing fingers. I'm seeing everything that's written in the news and what I actually see in the hospital. I would just, you know, emphasize we're all in this together. Just be kind. Uh, someone's coming in, just take care of them. If they're vaccinated or not, or if they came for the right reason or the wrong reason, I don't think it really matters. I think we just have to be there together for, for each other. This is going to end at some point. It's going to end sometime soon. So I think uh, this is an important time, but I think at the end of the day, we should remember that we're all in this together. Dr. A.L. Golan, an intensive care doctor here in the GTA, and Dr. Jamie Spiegelman, internal medicine and critical care physician at Humber River Hospital. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, almost two years into the pandemic, political leaders are on the defensive. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. As the Omicron wave of COVID-19 continues to strain the healthcare system and our individual mental health, Canadians may not have the confidence in government, all levels of government, that they had before the COVID crisis. 
Polling was revealed this week showing Ontario residents grew increasingly dissatisfied with the Ford PC's handling of the pandemic during the third wave last spring. And in Toronto, Mayor John Tory and various public leaders were on the defensive this week, explaining their plan for keeping emergency paramedic services going. As for the federal liberals, there is now growing frustration over the lack of COVID rapid tests across the country, despite a promise to send out tens of millions of more tests to the provinces by the end of January. All the while, there is overwhelming approval among Canadians for vaccine mandates. Libby was joined by our strategy panelist to discuss what governments are up against two years into the pandemic and five months ahead of an Ontario election. John Capobianco is a conservative strategist and senior vice president, senior partner at Fleischmann Hillard High Road. Toronto City Councillor Anna Bailau represents Davenport Ward 9. And Bob Richardson is a liberal strategist and senior counsel to national public relations. I think part of their problem is, is they have been too poll driven. And I think this is an, uh, yet another example of that. Look, I'm a bit like you, Libby. I, I as much as I would like to uh, pile on and dump on these guys for every every problem since the beginning of the pandemic, I don't think it's entirely fair. Uh, but I will say, of the three levels of government, the performance that has been, in my opinion, the worst has been the province. I think part of it has been a leadership issue, but part of it is I think the government of Ontario. Um, needs to be better organized and needs an updating. I think we're, we're still organized like, you know, Bill Davis is smoking a pipe and, uh, and this government needs to be much more, uh, swifter, nimbler, uh, modern. And I think, uh, I think we've seen that throughout the pandemic. Anna Bailao, what's your take on this? Um, well, I, I think that uh, you're, you talk about responding, and I'm not sure if it's a response or a reaction that they're dealing with. And I think one of the major issues uh, that they're having right now is they, they have not been able to explain what the end goal is. So we're going to close schools because we want to have half of the kids vaccinated because we want to have, like, what's the end goal? And I think that's where they lose people, is they can't galvanize the community around the reason why they're doing some of these actions. And, and I think that is, uh, that is a, a mistake. I think everybody wants kids in school. You hear it from everybody. Well, but uh, people are concerned because they don't understand why the schools are being closed or why they're being open. Nobody understands the reason for one or the other. Uh, people in the education field, other than uh, teachers' unions who feel unsafe, uh, say the kids have to go back to school. Then you see all the epidemiologists lining up and saying, no, the, the that's a bad idea. It's going to uh, lead to spread. So I guess the question is, who are they listening to? John? Well, I think, Libby, the fact that you, you're listening to Twitter is probably half the challenge. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I think, you know, to your question regarding, you know, this, this government's decision with respect to school closing, uh, you know, on the 5th or, or now coming back on the 17th, I think has a lot to do with the, the fact that this pandemic, uh, and, and this variant, quite frankly, has, has been, has been changing and it's been rapidly changing over the course of the last 
uh, number of weeks, if not the last month. And I think the government has to make a decision, and uh, in, like every government does, with a lot of competing interests. You've got health officials who are saying, "Shut everything down. This is crazy. We're you know the, the cases are 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 going through the roof." Um, you've got others saying, "Well, yeah, but the, you know this is a lesser variant than others by way of by way of symptoms and the hospital stays aren't being affected and ICUs aren't being affected." Now, again, that was at the beginning, and we're seeing that changing uh, over the course of the last little while. So the government has to sort of deal with those competing interests. And Councillor Bailao knows, as a, as a very successful politician, that you have a lot of those interests you have to weigh. The premier is no different, and quite frankly, the prime minister is no different. So, you know, I think what they've decided to do, quite frankly, Libby, is this: look. Let's make this a two-week shutdown, but in the two weeks that it's being shut down, let's make sure that we get booster shots and, and access to accelerated access to booster shots to education and, and child care staff, and, and let's make sure we get N95 masks to, the, to as many people as possible. So I think the success of this is going to be, what has the government done between the closing of the school and the opening of the school on the 17th? Have they done enough to make sure that kids are um, protected as our teachers and educators. And most, as you see, most parents that I talk to call me saying, get the kids back to school. It's important that they do this. So those are, that's the issue that all politicians face. And I suspect that's why you're seeing a fluctuating support level of all politicians. John Capobianco, conservative strategist and senior vice president, senior partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, Toronto City Councillor Anna Bailao for Ward 9 Davenport, and Bob Richardson, liberal strategist and senior counsel to National Public Relations. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The current phase of the pandemic is all about Omicron and its high transmissibility. Even if you are two weeks out from your third shot booster, there is still a 20 to 30 percent chance you will contract Omicron, either with symptoms or without, although likely not with severe disease and the need to be hospitalized. And even though there is an official daily tally of new COVID cases, the actual number is thought to be much higher, with many people unable to get a test while showing symptoms. So where does this leave us? And what is some advice for those managing the disease on their own? Libby was joined on Tuesday by Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID-19 Advisory Table, who provided some answers. Once you're over the peak, you know, you've had your diagnosis, you started to have symptoms and you're sure it is COVID, um, then the, the rapid test is actually relatively reliable, only that's not necessarily when we need it. It's still then useful to say, okay, I'm clear, rapid test is negative, you know, I don't have to self-isolate again. But at the very beginning, we need to be extremely careful right now. We're currently looking into that, you know, whether we can make rapid tests more useful by uh, using, you know, different ways of sampling rather than the nose, the mouth. But uh, this is all work in progress right now. So right now, don't trust the rapid test, you know, to say, okay, I'm clear, it's negative, all is hunky-dory. That's not true anymore with Omicron. I know that with PCR tests, you can still test positive after you've gotten over the disease. Is that the case with rapid tests? Yeah, the rapid tests then have an advantage there, you know, since they heavily depend on the viral load we're having. Once you have had a positive test, uh, a rapid or a PCR, your diagnosis is established, you know, when your symptoms start. 
And then when you start to uh, again test with a rapid test, perhaps five or seven days after, when the viral load is low enough, it will become negative. And then that's a reasonable way of just approaching that and say, okay, my rapid test is negative. My viral load is low. My immunity has kicked in. I'm on the way out. You know, things are normal again and I can go back to normal. That's the idea here. Uh, now, a lot of people can't even get a rapid test, so uh, we're being told to assume if we have any number of, uh, you know, basic cold s- symptoms, uh, assume you have Omicron. Yeah, exactly. Look, um, this makes unfortunately perfect sense right now because it's really quite safe to assume that roughly 10% of the population right now in Ontario are just infectious. Right now, as we speak, you and I. And uh, so if you have symptoms, the most likely cause for it is indeed Omicron. How do people know if they're in trouble? Because I know that in the first wave, uh, it kind of snuck up on some people. Yeah, you mean when they're in trouble medically? Yeah. Look, the most important part really is when you start to um, realize when you walk or walk up the stairs, for instance, that's a really good test from my perspective, that you start to uh, feel breathless. You know, if you just sit in a chair, it might actually happen. And we've seen this really in all the waves that people crash. You know, they don't realize that they get worse and worse and uh, they they, they uh, don't get that part. So if you start to see you're in trouble with your with uh, breathing, that you get breathless and you haven't before, that's when you need to uh, talk to a healthcare professional. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, another thing that's hard to get is a little device called an oximeter. Absolutely. If you have one, if you can get your hands on one and you have COVID, to uh, basically measure the uh, the oxygen pressure in your uh, in your blood, that's really good. And uh, final question, uh, are you worried about the return to school next week? Look, I think there's no such thing as a safe place anywhere unless you're a hermit. No, we need to be aware of that. But it's also very, very clear. First of all, schools are really essential for the well-being of our children. And we have good evidence now also from this province that school closures are associated with disproportionate harm. That's one of the aspects. The other is we can get our kids vaccinated. That's great. We mask up. We have ventilation that is much better than in many other places. And I think it is important that they can get back to school and our own, you know, children in a, in a, in a regular public school go back to school as well. There are seven and nine. Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID-19 Advisory Table. He was in conversation with Libby on Tuesday. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zuma Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. Susan in Toronto phoned to talk about the new long-term care restrictions during the current wave of COVID-19. A friend of mine is in Michael Guerin, and um, she, has ALS, uh, she has ALS. 
and nobody can visit her except her daughter and her um, husband. And it's hard on them. They need to be able to have somebody else to come in. And it, it, I think it's just a no-brainer. I think it's just ridiculous. And my late mother always said, uh, she said it wasn't Alzheimer that killed Joe. It was loneliness. So um, it's a terrible thing they're doing. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Pat in Toronto, who phoned about the Quebec Premier's controversial idea of taxing the unvaxxed. I think this is very important for most of us who are over age 60 listening to Zoomer radio. Because think about it, if we're ending up in the ICU and you've got a 77-year-old cranky old man, i.e. me, versus a 40-year-old who's got three kids, who do you think is going to get the ICU bed? And, I mean, I think that should be at the top of the list. I also can't believe that we're saying that the majority rights aren't important. I mean... What about democracy? And so my suggestion would be put this on a referendum and see where the answers would come out. And maybe you don't charge them. Maybe you just lock them in their houses right now for, because, I mean, we've got a problem and people are dying because of other people's inaction. It's as simple as that. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.